RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. All right, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, where we recap our games so that you can learn from our mistakes instead of having to make them yourself. So, Brian, how are you this week? I'm playing producer. I'm not, oh, that's right. I'm not here. I, I wasn't part of this game. <laughs> that's true. All right, my bad. Mike, how about you? Are you doing well? I'm good. How are you, Dustin? I am pretty good, though. <laughs> good. We're all happy. Um, so, let's talk about a game from our Pathfinder campaign. Uh, the second session of our Pathfinder campaign. So as a reminder for those at home, I decided to run a campaign completely out of the Pathfinder beginner box. Work is crazy. Work was crazy. Um, life was crazy. I didn't have a lot of time to prep. So I really wanted to limit the scope of my game to just some materials, uh, to some, to certain monsters, certain, just certain materials and, uh, limit the levels to five, limit the classes, limit everything to the, to that beginner box to really make prep and, and, and all that easy and to prove to myself that I could be creative inside those limitations. So the second session, it was our first kind of free form session in Sandpoint. So I'm using the monsters and I'm using, you know, some NPCs from the beginner box, but I wasn't using the adventure. This was after the adventure in the beginner box. So, so it was Black Fang's dungeon. This was after that. Um, so you guys were, were returning from Black Fang's dungeon and I had changed the adventure hook for the dungeon. I had had this guy posing as a farmer basically tell you that this black dragon was wreaking chaos and that you needed to take him out and that you guys could totally handle it. He was sure, positive, you, you could handle it. And he set you up for a really tough encounter with Black Fang that you scraped through by the, in, by, by the skin of your teeth. And I'm going to confess something here. I didn't necessarily know that farmer was, 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 a, uh, was, a, was setting you up. I thought maybe he was, but I, I wasn't sure of it until after you guys defeated Black Fang, and then it was Brian who was like, dude, what in the world? Like, the, I thought this was going to be easy, but this we almost died. This was really hard. Where's that farmer? And Brian's real anger at that farmer is what set up, oh, okay, I've got to capitalize on that. So lesson learned for you GMs out there. When your players show real emotion, oh, jump on that capitalize that whatever it is they're into do more of that expand on that zoom in on that you know whatever real emotion happens take advantage of it it's so impossible to get players and characters to react in emotional ways in a predictable way like you put this cuddly npc in front of them and then you kill that npc hoping they'll be sad and they're just not sad or they're not mad when they get screwed over or it, it their emotions are impossible to predict so i've stopped trying I do really basic scenarios, and then when emotion occurs, boom, change the game and take advantage of the emotion. But uh, Brian's real anger at that farmer led into this session, where it's like, okay, let's uncover, you know, what led this this guy posing as a farmer to set you guys up for this adventure, and it, and it blew the lid off Black Fang's whole protection scheme throughout Sandpoint. But Brian himself couldn't make it for that game. So it's just me, Mike, Nathan, and Chris. And Chris was playing this game for the first time. We were, we were introducing Chris's character, Valeros, to the uh, to to the campaign. So, Mike, I'm, I'm going to try to ask you a lot of questions in this podcast. So the real emotions, the real anger toward the farmer, even though Brian didn't make it for the game, I think the outrage and indignation was still there. Do you agree? Did you did you feel it? Absolutely. I think we actually worked that into Brian's absence too, and in that 
his his anger was palpable and real and so we as a party as his as his friends in game we were worried for his character encountering this farmer so he went off on like a a sojourner's journey to to cool off and, and get some of his anger out of his system before he confronted this farmer and i think nathan did a fantastic job in this game of playing up the indignation at having been set up yep Absolutely. So this game turned into a glorious chaos, and we were all over the place in this session. And we didn't try for this, but we had one of our very rare no-combat set. There was, there was no combat whatsoever. Yep. And how did you feel about that? Were you okay with that? I was okay with it. I think um, I think it was one of those where we, we, we just got too too busy into the world itself and too busy into, into following these plot lines and these strings that it, it just wasn't worth getting into combat. I think we were also focusing on uh, trying to, to resolve some of these issues without defaulting to combat because we knew that, that we needed to establish ourselves in this, in this town. So that wasn't planned going in. No, no. So you, you readied some characters for them to fight. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I had some, I, I thought they were going to, bust up the protection scheme physically. I had bandits basically ready to go. I, I had taken the guards from the beginner box book, and I had basically, I was going to use those stats to stand in for bandits. Interesting. Okay. And I was going to have you guys basically bust up the, the actual, uh, all the enforcers and members of, of, of Black Fang's gang. Um, if you listen to the podcast before, and if you listen to the episode where we talk about the beginner box, the that, that first adventure, the, the Black Fang's dungeon, we talk about how it was kind of revealed that Black Fang was, was running this protection scheme throughout Sandpoint, because how else is a, is a dragon going to accrue treasure? I mean, yeah, he could go out and steal it physically, but isn't it much easier just to kind of run a crime syndicate? And dragons in the Pathfinder world can speak. They can speak common, and they're pretty intelligent, so why not? So Black Fang was kind of this, this Job of the Hut-like character almost, but, but, but just getting his start with this kind of fledgling crime syndicate. Anyway, um... Yeah, Brian, to answer your question, I, I, I had combat ready. I thought it was going to be kind of a, a a bust heads and follow the lead session of, of basically busting the lid off Black Fang's gang in a very serious way. Like, like kind of the, the inspiration for this game is that Beastie Boys music video, Sabotage, where the main characters just go around the town busting heads and, and following one clue to the next. I can't stand it. Yeah. I know you planned it. <laughs> Sabotage. I want to send it straight this Watergate. Okay, I'll shut it up. But uh, that was my inspiration for this session. And it's not how it went at all. <laughs> it's not how it went at all. Um, but how it went was, was kind of glorious. And, and in terms of, man, I had to think on my feet and improvise a lot. But holy crap, you guys accomplished a lot. So I was thinking that we were just going to exit the dungeon, have this nice clean break from the dungeon, but follow up on leads from the dungeon to say, okay, why were we set up and who set us up and let's break the lid off that. No. Um, what I didn't take into account was uh, you guys wanting to basically monetize the heck out of that black dragon. You'd kill the black dragon. You had this massive black dragon corpse. And uh, immediately you're trying to sell its head. You're trying to you, you ask for any leather workers or tanneries in town. So in that moment where you guys started doing that, I was like, oh, crap. They're going to try to milk this thing for treasure. But I'm going to allow it. And the reason I decided to allow it was it would make the town real. And the whole idea of going around town and busting heads only really works in a pretty lawless town. Yep. So in that moment, 
and you guys made comments about worrying about the guards and all that. So I was like, you know, good point. Let's go ahead and make Sandpoint a fairly law-abiding town. Let's have the guards have a real presence. Let's have the guard captain have a real presence. And now, all of a sudden, my players are operating in this very civilized place inside the city gates, inside the city walls. And they were operating in a very civilized manner, certainly with threats of violence from Nathan, from Merciel, but not with any overt violence itself. So when you guys asked me, okay, is there a tannery? Can, can we sell this, this Black Dragon Corpse? We went through all the economics of you guys renting a wagon and taking the wagon and loading the corpse on it and bringing the corpse back and selling it. Um, and Nathan's rogue character, Merciel, getting a, a discount on some, you know, Black Dragon scale armor. Yep. Um, that, that was kind of a complete left field thing for me. So Mike, talk, talk. I I think the thing there is, is yeah, we were absolutely trying to milk as much value out of that black dragon corpse as we can. And I think we had some discussions of, would we get more value for, for the meat by the pound or for the scales, for the skin? Would it, would it be better for armor? What can we do with the horns? What can we do with the teeth? I mean, we were we were treating this thing like like a beef carcass. You know, if I sell the prime rib to the butcher and I sell the the, the hide to the tanner to make leather, <laughs> you, you were using every part of the dragon buffalo. Yes, we we were doing very Native American <laughs> efficiency of our of our of our of our harvest. So it was it was a very economical game. And it, it resulted in a lot of looking up gold pieces and numbers and prices and all that. And you guys didn't seem to, I, I was constantly worried that you were getting bored. And you guys didn't seem to get bored at all. I think we were having, I think we were having enough fun with the metagame of it at that point to say, okay, how much, how much, how much treasure can we extract from our victory? And I think that was enough to keep us going down that hole. Let's, let's play barter. Let's play, let's play vendor. And so, Merciel's black dragon armor. I liked it in the moment when she started, when, when he, Nathan, started asking about it for her. See, I even said she. I, I think of Merciel just as a, as a female. But yeah. um, when he started asking about the armor and getting this armor, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I love the fact that it's, that, that his armor is now this trophy from your first adventure together that ties into the world. He's wearing a piece of his first kill. Like, like it just, that was perfect. But I was worried about this turning into a Monty Hall campaign. Um, Monty Hall it, it, being famous for adventures with lots of treasure. Uh, but to me, this felt like, okay, yes, this, the, 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 the hide armor, the dragon scale hide armor is a step up mechanically from Nathan's leather armor. And I was kind of fudging the rules a little bit to allow it. Um, and it was better AC, but this wasn't necessarily better armor than he could have just bought. Yeah. Really what was different about it was the flavor. So, I mean, thoughts there? I mean, was it too early for to start having signature items and signature treasure? No, I think it worked, and I think um, I think our group is flighty enough that sometimes giving us the ability to do that has no impact because we quickly quickly forget about it. So, in, until we started talking about this game, I had absolutely forgotten that he had custom black armor, dragon scale armor. I think Nathan's probably forgotten about that too. That's a shame because if you recall. That black dragon scale armor gives him a plus five to hide attempts once per day. Yeah, no, I think I think everyone's forgotten about that. <laughs> That's funny. So the things that I think were really impactful in the moment, we just forget about. Yeah, and, and, and in fairness to Nathan, he switched from his original paper character sheet to this Excel spreadsheet that he found online where he's managing all of Mercial's stuff there. But when he listens to this episode, he will be reminded of his plus five to hide 
and we'll see what happens next game. You're welcome, Nathan. Yep. Um, let's see. What else for, about the dragon? Um, did, did, did all this interactivity, like, like you found a tannery, you dealt with t- the tannery guys tried to rip you off. Yep. You were tipped off to that by Shalalu. When you first met Shalalu, the, 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 she's in the beginner guide. Sorry. She's in the beginner box booklet as kind of this ranger that kind of protects the areas around Sandpoint. But I decided to make her the captain of the guard. You guys were going with a very law abiding town and a very serious guard force. So I switched her up and made her captain of the town guard. Um, and I had you guys meet her and she tipped you off that, Hey, you're, you're, you're being cheated by this tannery. And Nathan had a great, great role play scene with the tanners basically tipping off. Hey, I know you're ripping us off. Here's what we've actually discovered about this dragon horn and these dragon, this dragon head and the pieces and parts that you're going to sell. So I'm getting that armor for free, right? And he, he's playing with his knives and all that. It was, it was, he did a great job with that scene. Um, Nathan just did a great job with, with this particular session overall, but the dealing with the tanner and finding the tanner and negotiating with the tanner and then finding out the tanner's cheating you and then going back to the tanner. I mean, this is all one session and it felt like so much. Did it help standpoint feel interactive for you? I think it did. Um, I think this was also a good, a good instance of having a campaign where rather than, than hacking and slashing our way through the world, we we negotiated, we intimidated, we we used our charisma stats and our abilities to actually interact with the world rather than just dominating it. And that was the pivot that I made on the fly. Was to say, okay, if we're not gonna do bus tech combat, then let's let's let them interact with the world and hopefully the world feels real and, and Sandpoint has felt real in the campaign ever since. So this session has accomplished a lot for us in terms of the overall campaign. Let's talk about Nathan some more. So backing off the, the, the black dragon um, and selling all the pieces and parts of, 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 of its corpse, um, let's go back to the, the protection scheme. So you guys staked out the rusty dragon inn, which is where you met the, uh, the, the NPC that, that, that was posing as a farmer that sent you on this fool's errand to try to kill this dragon. And uh, Nathan had, a, again, a really good role play scene where he cornered the guy when he came in the bar. He didn't notice you guys at first. And all of a sudden, you had the dragon head right in front of him. You're like, hey, look what we got. And Nathan had snuck up behind him and cornered him. So the guy tried to back out. And as I recall, I had him back straight into Nathan, back straight into Merciel, and turn around and see this elf there, you know, idly twirling her knives. And uh, you had this really great intimidation scene where I role-played with you guys, where I was kind of the scared guy that set you up. And then, holy crap, you actually killed the dragon, and now he's terrified of you. So... We played that scene with me playing that guy and you guys asking him questions for like a long time. Yep. I mean, it was 10, 15 minutes of, of, of real time. And Mike, you, you adopted this. So Nathan was, was the, the threatening psycho. He was definitely bad cop. You were good cop. And when I say good cop, I mean cop. Yeah. And we talked in the dust game about how you adopted this very cop like persona to try to, to try to rescue Tess Green. So here you were dropping back into a cop persona. Is that is that your default play style? Like, like I, talk to talk talk about that. You know, it 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 really almost is my default play style. So I think a lot of what we get into, especially with our group and and our games, is that we have these these chaos elements, right? So so we've we've oftentimes got Chris and his rogue characters and his his chaos characters who are trying to to do these crazy outlandish things and and building up all sorts of 
of uh, uh, schemes that that have so many things can go wrong. I think you mentioned in the last episode, you know, when when you have to make three or four rolls in succession to try and pull something off, it's not going to work. And then I think I get into that cop element to to normalize that chaos. If I can, if I can get the info we need, if I can get that clue we need, if I have to 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 strong arm and, and use things like you know the the ideas of justice and equality and and criminal proceedings in this fake world to get to that clue, I think for me that's the shortest path to get to that clue to progress in the in the game. So it's all about progression for you. Okay, and and it's you playing roles that you've seen a million times on TV yeah. to make that progression happen. And I think I I often wind up playing paladins and and wizards and and people who are going to have these these high intelligence these these high you know kind of law and order minded folks who are who are going to use structure and who are going to use rules to try and get to their ends. Um, especially when I when I play a paladin, it's all based on my sense of justice, my allegiance to my god, or whatever at that time that I'm going to use to to create that structure to get through the 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 obstacle. So when you do that, you, so you mentioned that you do this to move the plot forward. Is it fun for you, or is it just moving the plot forward and that's the service you're providing the table? It's fun for me because you you do a good job of pushing back. Um, you you try to detangle all that structure that I'm setting up. And I think that makes a good back and forth. So it's not just me barricading through the game. You, you put up the obstacles appropriately to, to make that conflict and, and it is fun. All right. So speaking of negotiations and intimidation and all that, let's talk about meeting Valeros. So Chris was playing Valeros and Valeros, Chris wasn't around for our first session. So Chris didn't get to experience Blackfang's dungeon. So, in, in making this explicitly a mini campaign, I wanted to have all the trappings of a campaign, which is, hey, these characters have got to get to know each other. And who are they and how do they meet? And, you know, act one of a campaign is forming the group. So that's, that's where we still very much were. So I wanted to have some, some role play between you guys and Chris when you met his character of Valeros. And here's, here's, a, here's a regret from the session. Um, Man, that, that negotiation of cutting his character in and, and what cut of the treasure he got, that took a while. That took a while, but I I think we 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 got a lot of juice for that squeeze, right, to kind of put it into a business term because for the next I mean, honestly, to current day in our campaign, he's still technically an intern. I don't think we've made him a full hire yet. He's, he's still paying off his debt. He's, what how did you guys screw him over? Like he only gets like ten percent of the treasure, whereas you guys get. He he only got like yeah, it was only like ten percent of the treasure until he completed like three full adventures, and this one did not count it as adventure because we did not have combat. So his very first adventure did not count towards his active pay, paying off his debt. Yeah. Yes, and so I, I think we even set it up as that even after the three adventures, we would do like a, a review, like a like an employee review, employer review. You know, here's here's how you've benefited to the group, and then depending on how you come out of your review, then we'll discuss your additional percentage. And if you're still a full partner or if you're <laughs> not a full partner in our in our four way split. So if you're listening at home, you're like, man, if I was Chris, I would not take this crap. No, we were absolute dicks. <laughs> but I will say this. Even that very first session, you guys had some really decent armor and weapons that you'd recovered from Black Things Dungeon. Yep. That you quote unquote sold to Chris, but at a steep discount. Yeah. So for all that there's the overall flavor 
of Chris's character being screwed out of treasure, he has absolutely picked up more than his or, or his absolute fair share of weapons and armor and abilities to where Chris Chris has been ultimately cut in on just as many of the magic items. It's just that we flavorfully talk about, you know, he still sleeps in this crappy one-bedroom apartment above the blacksmiths where it's smoky and hot and uncomfortable. But on paper, on his character sheet, his character has just as much magical loot and is just as capable. It's just he doesn't have as much spending money, yeah. which winds up being just flavor. It's flavor in the world. Right. And to your point, every session you guys use that to get some decent RP, in it, and it adds to continuity, and campaigns are all about continuity. So Chris is an awesome sport about stuff like this. Oh, yeah. And, and in Chris's, Chris's favor, absolutely, yeah, we, we definitely are way past due of making him a full 100% member of the team. Maybe that should happen next session. It, it should. I, I think it's something we haven't brought up in a while just because we haven't had a chance to get to it, but yeah. Yeah, we've had a lot of fun with this campaign. We have. All right. Um. So so I had this kind of question in the notes about how much RP is too much RP, specifically with regard to these negotiations. But what you're putting forward, Mike, is that it may have felt to me, the GM, like it was going on for too long, but you guys fully enjoyed it at the time, and it's continued to pay dividends in the actual campaign. Yeah. So are you saying that, that this wasn't actually a misstep at all? No, I don't think it was. I think uh, I think the, the character building we did between the three of us, creating that... that uh, that that hierarchy interaction of this is this is not only where we exist in town, but this is where we exist within our own party. I think we've still we we've still gained dividends from that to to this day. Um, that's working out really well. I think what also became really important is that I think in this campaign we really established Shalalu and her character, which in future campaigns allowed you to change her character and make her a little more dynamic. And yeah, in future sessions. Um so let's talk about the, the, the NPCs real quick. So Amako, who runs the Rusty Dragon Inn, was very briefly introduced in our first session. But then you guys got to know her much better in this session as you questioned her about that farmer. As, as you staked out the Rusty Dragon Inn to wait for this guy playing a farmer who was really part of the protection scheme, um, you got to know her much better. And I was kind of, I still run her with this kind of pseudo-Irish accent. I feel like it's one of the few accents that I can even halfway do, and I don't do accents. But I wanted to have, when, like, when she speaks and I'm playing her character, I want it to be recognizable. Ah, that's Amico. Does that work? Yeah, I think it works pretty well. That, that, this is my first time, I think, trying crazy accents at the table. Yeah, I think it worked out really well. I think you did a good accent. It was something that was repeatable and recognizable. So it, it wasn't, you know, one day she's Irish, the next day she's Australian, which is absolutely <laughs> the trap I would get into, which is why I try not to do voices as the GM. But uh, I think you did a good job with it. And she also has this relationship with Valeros that's kind of pseudo-flirtatious and pseudo-antagonistic. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah, um, and not flirtatious. Like, like, she does not care for him. Yeah. She flirts with him exactly enough to get tips. Yep. And that's how I play it, because I don't want to play flirting with you guys, no offense. And I think it works out really well, because Chris is absolutely playing that other half of the role where he is a sucker, and flirting with him absolutely gets her bigger tips. Yeah, and he, Chris does a really good job of playing, even though in real life Chris is happily married with a child. Um, great job, uh, manager, manager at a, at a Fortune 50 company. Um, but he does a great job of in the game playing this kind of socially awkward, bumbling guy who's just trying to hit on chicks. And he's having a lot of fun with that character. Yep. 
All right. Um, let's talk about Shalalu. So we talked about, you just mentioned that she was well-established to be changed later. I mentioned her earlier, talking about making her t- captain of the town guard to give her kind of a place in town, because she's one of the few NPCs included in the beginner box. In the beginner box, it's literally um, Ilsorai Gandithus, who runs the Magic Tower, is briefly mentioned. Shalalu is mentioned. Uh, the mayor of the town, Kendra Deverin, Deverlin, is mentioned. And then Amako is mentioned. And I think that's it for the NPCs in the beginner box. If there are more, it's like two or three more. It's not like ten more. So there's no there's no real big list of NPCs. So to stick to the beginner box, I've had to milk these NPCs for all that I can get out of them, which is why making Shalalu Captain Town Guard worked, worked great. I tried to have her come into this game and really set her up to be kind of a badass. Like she, she, she's powerful. Um, at that point, she could have easily taken you guys out solo. I don't know about now, now that you're all level four, but at the time she certainly could have. So I, I tried to play her up to be this powerful, otherworldly, you know, elfish character. And yes, Mercy's an elf too, but Mercy had been raised by humans. So I'm really trying to portray elves as much more alien, which is not something I've ever done before. I've always portrayed elves as being kind of like pretty humans. But I really wanted to play up. No, these these are alien. You they they may look like you, they may sound like you. But to quote, uh, to quote the the Mimbari from Babylon Five, but sh- but they are not you. They are different. Um, how that so? Shalalu has been in a lot of games ever since. Yep. And you guys have developed a pretty not tight relationship in terms of. I don't think you like each other. <laughs> she definitely doesn't like you guys. No. But I think you like it when she shows up in a game. You can play off of her. No, absolutely. Um, I would say with her, you did a really good job up front establishing her as an authority and establishing her as a uh, as a character who who would be one not to be trifled with. You you set up that mystique of she has power. I'm not going to make it obvious to you how much power she has, but it's significant. Um, and I think you did a good enough job of that 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 we've 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 uh, we've respected that and and we've played to that character. And while we while we gently goad her sometimes, I think as a group, we're always careful not to cross the line with her. All right, so let's sum up this session, right? So we had no combat, no combat whatsoever, Yep. Um, which you guys were great with. And, and I, hey, I think variety is good. I think the occasional no combat session works well for our group. And though I was surprised, even shocked, I mean, I left the game. I closed out the game for the night thinking, man, that was kind of, I don't know if they liked that. But then you guys are immediately telling me, oh, man, that was fun. That was great. So you guys had fun interacting with the town, but uh, but no combat. I guess what I'm saying is read your character, or sorry, read your players. They were having fun not having combat. They were having fun figuring out ways to, to milk value out of the Black Dragon Corpse. They were having fun interacting with these NPCs and, and having these role-play moments. And role-play is rare enough in the role-playing games, ironically, for me, that when it happens, by God, Sit back and let it happen. Uh, in the last episode with the Star Wars one shot, we talked about how, you know, for one shots, maybe skip that first role play scene and get into the character and make some moves with the character and, and take some actions and, and inhabit that character and then role play comes easier. That's what happened here, right? We had that first session in Black Fang's dungeon that was very mechanical. Enemies, puzzles, traps, lots of rolling, lots of perception rolls, attack rolls. Uh, intelligence rolls, saving throws, lots and lots of rolls. And it gave you guys a feel for your characters, which freed you up 
to just jump in and have this great role play session where you figured out how do you fit in in Sandpoint and how do you interact with Sandpoint and what's what's your thing in Sandpoint? What do you do? So I think that worked. Um, so no combat, being in character, um, reading your players, reading what they're finding interesting and, and just indexing on that, zooming in on that. Um, loot. I think part of the fun of this Pathfinder session has been the loot. You know, we, we, we've used the loot tables in the beginner box to the point where I've actually created a loot roller on Justinian.com where it's, it's the Pathfinder beginner box treasure roller where we hit a button and it rolls the treasure according to those beginner box tables. Uh, we have a lot of fun with the loot and getting the loot and selling the loot and retaining the loot and, and Nathan's out, you know, outfitting his, his, his band of organized crime with the loot. The loot's become a real thing. So I think it has kind of become a Monty Hall campaign, but it's not been a Monty Hall campaign that makes your characters wildly powerful with plus three weapons. You guys get flavorful loot like dragon scale armor from dragons that you killed, but it's not overpowered for your level. Yep. And I think the treasure has been really fun and it's made you guys feel wealthy. Like you can do whatever you want. And you guys have used the heck out of that in different games that we'll get into later to go buy whatever you need for whatever adventure you need at the time. Like going shopping pre adventure is almost sort of a thing in this group now. Yeah, it is. I, I kind of along that line, it's like, while I have three staffs of healing carrying around in my backpack, I sometimes just don't feel like I really need to use them. They're there and we have all this loot, but we only really focus on loot when it's needed to get us through an obstacle in the story. Which is perfect. Yep. And then the important NPCs. So all these role play interactions that you had and figuring out how to, how to role play your characters and who to role play with and all that. Basically what I'm saying is this session, I read the table. I read what you guys wanted. I threw out my plans and I went with what you guys wanted, even though I couldn't fathom it at the time. You guys seemed to like it, so I kept going with it. And it turned into a really good session that set us up for a really good campaign. Yep. All right. That, that's it. That's RPG lessons learned for this week. Listen to your players. Watch your players. Go whatever direction they take you. And, and you'll have surprising games, but surprisingly fun games. And it's different. It's different than video games. It's different than scripted stuff. That's the advantage of role-playing games is that you get to sometimes have a game where you take advantage of the, of the world's economics and, and figure out how your characters are going to get ahead economically as well as, you know, on a power curve. So good game, good session. Uh, join us next week, rpglessonslearned.com. All the, the subscribe buttons are there. Uh, a link to – so TF Radio is, is our parent website. The TF Radio family of podcasts, uh, they have an Amazon link that you can use. It doesn't cost you anything more. It's part of the Amazon affiliate program. You click on that link, they'll, they'll, they'll throw a, a very small, very small percentage of your purchase uh, at tfradio.net. And uh, Brian uses that to, to pay for his bandwidth, to pay for these microphones and, and processing boards that we're using to, to run the show. So if you can, if you feel like it, uh, use that affiliate link next time you shop on Amazon for your RPG supplies. All right, thank you very much for listening. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.